This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello you're listening to the times red box politics podcast no matt Chorley this week so it's me patrick mcguire in his place. We've got a great podcast for you today. In a moment, we're going to be talking sleaze. But first, it's time for today's Columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's Louis Purvis. Good morning, Libby. Morning. And no Rachel Sylvester today, so we've got Martha Gill instead. Morning, Martha. Morning. Lots to get through today. Uh, lots of talking points for you to get your teeth into. Uh, let's kick off with the story the Labour Party have been putting about this morning. We talked earlier about their claims that the government has been misusing so-called government credit cards. Here's the deputy leader, followed by Government Minister Richard Holden, talking to Times Radio Breakfast earlier. Some of them do seem extremely excessive. So they're under the heading of transparency data, we've got thousands of pounds on sparkling wine. We've got under the heading of auditing and accountancy, a five-star luxury golf hotel in the Bahrain. So unless they were doing the books in Bahrain, I'm not quite sure why that has to be an emergency spend on a credit card. Actually, since 2012, we've fully transparently declared all spending on these government procurement cards. And there's one reason for that. And that's in the last year of the last Labour government, almost a billion pounds was spent on these government procurement cards. So compare 2009 with last year, and you're seeing an 85% reduction in spending on government procurement cards. That was Angela Rayner, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, and Richard Holden, the Transport Minister. Uh, Libby, there's an obvious reply, rejoinder to this story. The government needs to spend money on things. It spends hundreds and hundreds of billion pounds a year. What difference do a hotel room for a minister here, a meal for foreign diplomats there, making the grand scheme of things. Do you think Labour have really made a convincing case that this is excessive and beyond the pale? Well, given that it was a Labour government which started this, this procurement system, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> they have to look back a bit as well. But I don't know, people are maybe sick of me going on about my dad, the Scottish Presbyterian, deeply honest civil servant, mid-range diplomat, who was absolutely obsessed with the idea that you must not spend public money too freely. You know, you really must be careful with public money. And I was sort of brought up with all that, you know, going on in the background of the household, you know, when he had to do entertaining and that kind of thing. It was always pared back. And I think it's a good principle to keep on coming back to 
Uh, and I think it's quite useful that Labour's done this, and I think these things need looking at, and especially what needs looking at is apparently some big things, for, a case of sparkling wine was put down as computer equipment or something like that, I saw in the report this morning. So, no, I, I think it's, it's a good thing to bring up, and uh, good on them. Yeah, speaking from experience, sparkling wine and computers don't tend to go together uh, in any sense of that sentence. Now, Martha, what, what do you think? Is this all of a bit of a, uh, a storm in a subsidised teacup? Well, in terms of the actual sums involved uh, and um, etc., I think it probably doesn't make too much of a dent in in the national uh, in taxpayers' money. But um, on the other hand, yes, people really don't like it when uh, ministers um, seem to be taking them for a ride, um, and I think that's quite right. And it's a reminder that actually these people um, who are in charge of the country are no different to the rest of us when we get. Um, <laughs> when we're told we we can get things on expenses and they need rules in place. You can't just rely on them to be uh, to be ingenious um, and Presbyterian. Um, They they're just they're they're going to they're going to take advantage of it. So um, we need to have just as many rules um, for them as we do um, for everybody else. Journalists spending freely on expenses. Speak for yourself, Martha. I've never, ever heard of that. Me and my uh, Times parliamentary colleagues wouldn't dream of uh, of such behaviour. Uh, Libby, do you think that though Labour are trying to land this criticism as... Uh, you know, as a, as a plague on the uh, on the Conservative Party, a criticism of the Conservative Party. They're trying to tell a story about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss being out of touch and profligate. It's not the risk here that it just reinforces the low expectations and aspersions uh, the public have about politics and Whitehall in general. Oh, I don't think that uh, that ship has sailed, hasn't it, recently? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think this is going to make it any worse. And I do think that keeping a tight eye, everybody should have a tight eye on the idea that their personal rather large dinner in some foreign country when they didn't even have a foreign guest with them, uh, all these things, I think people should be aware. Anyone in public life should be aware of how they spend their expenses and indeed anyone in journalism. I mean, they used to be the most terrific sort of hurling money around in journalism when I started and there totally isn't now. And I think that you should always know where the money's coming from that you're spending. You know, it's, and sometimes it's possible to just kind of spend your own money. You know, that, that can happen. Yes, spending your own money and people who tend to be much more careful with their own money uh, than somebody else's. Martha, do you think this will, we're talking about sleaze a little bit later on in the show and how uh, rising numbers of voters see the Conservative Party in particular and our politicians in general as, in YouGov's words, sleazy and disreputable. Do you think, uh, as I was saying to Libby, that this, uh, this all goes in the mix and people will read this story with a weary nod of rec- recognition and say, well, that's just what they're like? Yeah, I expect that is how it will go down. And yeah, of course, whenever a sleaze story is is revealed, I I get the sense it adds to a general cynicism about politicians in general, and people start to expect that of politicians. So it rebounds on all of the politicians. However, that's no reason to not keep revealing to the public um, what is going on. I mean, this is, as Libby said, important information, no matter how it... um, eventually ends up affecting people's uh, voting decisions uh, they, they they do need to know these things so um uh, yes a labor's right to to try and reveal this story about the tories even if it does rebound on them um um in a way that they m- not, might not quite be expecting
Now, let's uh, move on to a story that was all over the Sunday Times yesterday. Kemi Badenoch, the business secretary, has urged people to use the tragic Tavistock scandal to remind us to always stand up for the truth as we see it after claims in the Sunday Times yesterday that more than 1,000 children were given puberty blockers at the controversial NHS Clinic. That's the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, uh, which is the Child Gender Identity Clinic, uh, which uh, is set to close this year after a review found that it was not a safe or viable long-term option. Libby, what did you make of this? Well, there, there's been it's been a terrific scandal, and there's been a great sort of professional groupthink blindness around this. What bothers me most of all is the numbers of children who have massive other issues and were referred to them, and the other issues, autism, uh, family problems, um, previous abuse, and so on, were simply not taken into account. Well, oh no, no. Well, okay, let's let's move them on to the uh, puberty blockers, and then from there they nearly all seem to move on to the the main sex change hormones. And it, it just feels as if there was a sort of madness, a kind of groupthink madness. This is, well, we are professionals. This is what we do. We can do this. The most telling thing in it is that the Dutch system, where you put them onto puberty blockers, you know, which, which might be reversible, perhaps not as reversible as they should be, um, uh, at a very young age. They call it the Dutch system. But apparently the Dutch had been far more careful about looking at the real mental health issues and society issues of these of these young people, of these kids. And so I'm, I'm delighted that, you know, we're giving space to this. I think one of the other sort of minor scandals about it is all the publishers who wouldn't publish it, not because it wasn't a good book and an interesting book, but because they couldn't get it past their junior staff. You know, I mean, what does the word junior mean anymore? <laughs> um, so I found that interesting as well. Yes, this is the, the book we're talking about is Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock gender service for children and that's by hannah barnes a bbc journalist and she's spoken to former clinicians at the clinic who've detailed how some incredibly complex complex children were placed on medication after one face-to-face assessment Uh, the clinicians claim they regret routinely referring under 16s for puberty blocking and cross-hormone treatment with no concrete data on the long-term effects and they compared the referrals to the mid-staffs hospital scandal of the 2000s and the doping of east german athletes in the 1960s and 70s martha do you think um, you know, it's almost it's become a cliche to say this debate is is difficult, toxic, all manner of other uh, unpleasant adjectives, particularly when uh, politicians talk about it. Just look to Holyrood and how that's gone for Nicola Sturgeon in recent weeks. But do you think this case has been a bit of a bit of a watershed for sort of um, setting the parameters and a consensus on um, where sort of most people can agree on on this sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, no matter what your ideological stance, if if you're doing something medical, it needs to have, um, you know, a lot of data to back it up. And, 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 um, you know, uh, yes, okay, if you have um, children who meet a particular clinical standard, and it's, it's the case that um, these children are much, it's definitely the best thing to do for these children to put them on puberty blockers. um, that's one thing but there, there definitely doesn't seem to be any um, evidence for that definitely not sufficient evidence um, and so that really should not be happening um, and it's a very radical thing to do to, um, to put somebody on puberty blockers I mean you're, that person is then going to have to be to have medical support for the rest of their lives 
Um, so even if you don't have any ideological stance on this matter, um, that, that's something that you have to have a lot of clinical support to, to do to somebody. Do you agree, Libby? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, this, is, this is a lifelong medical intervention, you know, and uh, uh, that's the last thing anybody really wants in their life. It has to be urgent. I believe, I mean, I've, I've said for years I've been uh, in favour of the rights of trans people and the rights of people to be trans and to accept that that is the way they are. Uh, but uh, this has been a real scandal. It's been ideologically driven by a small group of, of campaigners and uh, by some doctors with perhaps just that bit too much, uh, uh, too much, too much belief, and uh, I think uh, it's good that it's being exposed now, and it has been exposed. Now, who wouldn't want to go along to Westminster Abbey to hear this sort of thing? Will you solemnly promise and swear? to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, and of your possession and the other territories to any of them belonging or pertaining according to their respective laws and customs. I solemnly promise so to do. That was, of course, the late Queen's coronation in 1953. Libby... You've written about the challenges for her son, uh, King Charles, in drawing up a guest list that reflects modern Britain and doesn't, in your words, uh, uh, subject the country to the sound of Zadok the priest echoing off the high altar with Michelle Moan, Evgeny Lebedev and Geoffrey Archer standing by in scarlet maxi gowns and ermine hats. Yes, it, it all started off uh, with a story that the lords were getting a bit fussed because they think they're not going to have an automatic right to be there. Of course, there were 8,000 people last time because there were grandstands 70 years ago. This year, there's no grandstands. It's 2,200. So I thought, right, let us start a lovely parlour game for readers of the Times. Uh, who do you want to be there? Who should be there? So I've given my prescription and some people are going, hurry, harumph, harumph, harumph about it. Um, and others are approving of it. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a very interesting exercise. You know, who, who do you want there? Who represents us? Who deserves to be there? Um, I would like to see a lot of very, very ordinary people, you know, not even in the sort of MBE charity classes. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like some kind of cleaners and, uh, and chaps who maintain the highways and so on. Uh, to be invited and to be there, you know, in among the lords and so on. And I would like it not to get all sort of celebrity driven, you know, this terrible rule that you can't have a public event without Grayson Perry in it. Um, so Sir Grayson Perry, thank you very much, Libby. I love Grayson Perry, but it's a game for us all to play, basically. That's what it is. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You make a good point. I love this line. If both houses of parliament got a pass, you'd fill two thirds of the abbey, add the royal family down to the smaller Tyndalls, plus 170 high commissioners and ambassadors, a touchy breed as you note, Libby, and several hundred equally touchy visiting heads of states and spouses. You barely 60 chairs left. Martha, do you agree? Should this be a, a sort of festival of modern Britain with you know, people from all walks of life? Or is the point of an occasion like this, the flummery, the tradition, the pomp, all the great and good gathered? You know, what's the point of doing this if we're not going to yeah. do it as a rarefied ritual? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with getting the monarchy to represent modern Britain is that, of course, the monarchy doesn't represent 
modern Britain in any way. It represents feudalism and colonialism and male heredity, and like it's, it's diametrically opposed to modern Britain. But it has always had something to do with patronage and charities and handing out um, recognition to people. It, it, it feels on a whim that deserve it, and that is actually some, something that could be used for good. And I totally uh, agree with um, Libby that it shouldn't. We shouldn't replace the aristocracy of old with the new aristocracy, i.e. celebrities, who yeah. had enough attention anyway. Um, the, the really good thing monarchy does is um, it, can, it can lift up um, some unrecognised charities and people who are doing good work. And I also really like her idea of the monarchy handing out um, patronage itself, <laughs> the ability to grant, to sort of, give your invitation to somebody more worthy that less recognised than you, uh, giving that to, to the usual suspects. So, you know, a, a, um, the, 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 the head of the BBC handing it out to a cameraman who feels that deserves more recognition, etc. Um, I think that's a fantastic idea. And the big question, of course, I'll put it to both of you in turn. Harry and Meghan, should they be invited and should they, will they come? Libby, you first. Oh, should be invited, should come and should behave and not turn it into a stunt. End of. No uh, no messing around there. Martha, do you think it'll look... Uh, who do you think it'll reflect badly on, primarily, if Harry and Meghan aren't there? Will, do you think the public will think, oh, you know, they can't come because they've been victimised by their family or will it look like a, a fit of petulance? Oh, I think the public will be very disappointed. They're a key part of the Royal Soap Opera um it'll be i really hope they come and i really hope something happens that we can all write about and enjoy um uh, but yes i think it would look badly um on the royal family if they if, if they left uh megan and harry out and it would sort of look like they took what megan and harry were saying too seriously and uh megan and harry had revealed something that's real um uh whereas um inviting them will will, will suggest that they think it's all a storm in a well, there you go. A plea from the commentariat to Harry and Meghan to me- behave or misbehave, depending on what makes for better copy. That was Libby Purvis and Martha Gill. Remember, you can read Libby every week in The Times. Just head to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box and get yourself a digital subscription. Now we're going to be talking sleaze. Can Rishi Sunak turn the Conservative Party's reputation around? We've got some exclusive polling which shows that 70% of voters now think the Conservative Party are very sleazy and disreputable. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Our big question for our big thing today, can Rishi Sunak turn the page on sleaze? Now, sleaze might be one of those things that's in the eye of the beholder, but it's there in the eyes of quite a lot more people than one might expect, according to exclusive new YouGov polling for the Times and Times Radio. Uh, They found that 70% of people now say the Conservatives give the impression of being very sleazy and disreputable. That compares to 60% when they were asked that question in November 2021 and 51% in April 2021. Now, Rishi Sunak came to power promising a new broom, uh, clearing out the Orgean stables when it came to standards. And he said he'll show zero tolerance when it comes to ministerial misbehaviour. But is there still time with 18 months or so until the next election, for him to turn around the public's perceptions. In a little while, we're going to talk to Martin Bell. Uh, You may remember he was the BBC war reporter who quit journalism to run as an anti-sleaze candidate in the 1990s after uh, John Major's government uh, fell on its sword in the midst of very similar stories. And Lord Barwell who's the former Downing Street Chief of Staff, who worked for Theresa May. But first, let's talk about those numbers in a little more detail with Patrick Inglis, who's Associate Director at YouGov. Morning, Patrick. Morning, Patrick. How are you doing? Very well. Always good to speak from one Patrick to another. And (laughs) Jerry Scott, Times political reporter. Morning, Jerry. Morning, Patrick. Uh, Patrick, just how bad are these numbers then? As we've just heard... In April 2021, okay, a majority, a narrow majority of voters think the public, uh, think the Conservatives give the impression, or they agree with the statement you put to them, which is the Conservatives these days give the impression of being very sleazy and disreputable. But it's gone up and up and up since, hasn't it? It has indeed. We've been doing some digging around in our archives, and we believe this is the highest score that we've had uh, in terms of people agreeing with the notion that Conservatives are suffering uh, from sleaze and the disreputable. So to put this in historical context, this these figures are higher than what we saw under the Boris Johnson premiership. These figures are higher than what we saw under anything in sort of the Cameron years and much, much higher than anything that we saw in the in the early 2000s when the Conservatives were, were in opposition. So I think if we look back and look at where the public opinion is drifting and has been going now around the Conservative Party, it is very much reflective of those 1990s where the stories of scandal and sleaze were dominating the headlines and the public were getting this perception that the Conservative Party could be characterised in such a way. So 70% agreeing with that suggestion. That's a very significant number. That's 7 in 10 UK adults or British adults saying that, that that's a good characterization of the Conservative Party. So it's a very bad place for Rishi Sunak and his party to be in. So you're saying these numbers are higher even than, say, the expenses era in the late noughties? Yes, when we looked at that, we sort of found similar numbers to around with a sort of Boris Johnson sort of level, David Cameron sort of level, around about 60%. And of course, the Labour Party was suffering in that regard too. So what we're seeing now is an outpacing of that. And I think 
a lot of that is driven by the general, let's say, antipathy and general frustration and anger with a lot of people around the Conservative government right now. So we're sort of we're wrapping in the uh, the, the specifics themselves, the stories themselves, and the overall trajectory of public opinion about the Conservative Party over the last twenty years in this regard, with a much broader sense that this government is not doing well, not addressing problems that want to be addressed, and are instead focusing on other issues which aren't really getting to the root of what the public cares about and needs right now, i.e. the cost of living crisis. Now, Jerry, Rishi Sudak recognised that this was a problem in the eyes of the public when he uh, became Prime Minister. Of course, he stood on the steps of Number 10 and promised to lead a government with integrity, uh, professionalism and accountability at its heart, didn't he? And he's also shared, uh, said he'll show zero tolerance for ministerial misbehaviour. But might that be easier said than done? The Dominic Raab story isn't going away. The Nadine Zahawi story took longer than lots of people in Cabinet and in Number 10 would have liked before they reached a resolution. Is he fighting a losing battle here? Um, I think the short answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is that I think when you see the culmination of these figures, it really shows that Bishy Sunak is going to continue to deal with a hangover from his predecessors. You know, we can see quite clearly that those figures have gone up and up and up, but it doesn't seem to me that that's necessarily a judgment on his government, but on the Conservative governments, um, you know, the the hangovers that he's dealing with, with Dominic Raab, for example, come from before his time, the way he deals with it, he'll be judged by. But it's this constant drip, drip, drip for the public, I think. And Rishi Sunak may say he's going to be tough. I sat down with the new um, Standards Commissioner for Parliament a couple of weeks ago, and he said the reputation of Parliament is at a dangerously low level, and he's going to be tough as well. But it feels a little bit like it's too little too late. The public already have this perception, um, and I'm not sure it's going to change. Is that accurate, Patrick? Do you see that in the data? Obviously, Rishi Sunak came in, new broom, broadly well regarded by the public. Has that made a difference? I, th- I think what's what perhaps uh, the, the strongest evidence that we can see in the data is that when Rishi Sunak came in as Prime Minister, his personal ratings were significantly higher than that of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party brand had been taking successive reputational hits, both under Boris Johnson with the whole Partygate affair, then under Liz Truss with the economic fallout from her uh, uh, her budgets. But what and what we sort of expected was that Rishi Sunak would perhaps bring in this broom, would perhaps turn around this reputation and would bring the Conservative Party, restore some of the party brand's power and bring it back up to about where his ratings were. But we've actually seen the opposite. Rishi Sunak's ratings have gone down and down and down since being Prime Minister and his personal, personal well, opinions about him personally is starting to look as negative as Conservative Party overall. So rather than him being able to improve the brand of Conservative Party, it looks more like the Conservative Party has toxified his brand. Yes, and that's what people in the Labour Party I know have been surprised by. They feared that mm. Rishi Sunak would drag the Conservative Party's numbers up, but they... And also lots of Tory MPs have been struck by his numbers uh, falling, stooping to uh, stooping to conquer his parties, as it were. And Jerry, it's important to point out before we move on, it's not just the Conservative Party who are struggling uh, with this issue at the moment. Broader questions of uh, standards and misconduct, uh, the number of MPs without the whip in uh, Parliament now is a group bigger than the Lib Dems, obviously, for a range of misdemeanours, alleged misdemeanours. Indeed, some of them don't even know what they're accused of. And just last week, Jared O'Mara, the former Labour MP, was sentenced to four years in prison 
for faking his expense claims uh, to, among other things, uh, feed his cocaine habit. So this is a, as you've been saying, as both of you have been saying, a broader problem that voters perceive with our political culture in general. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I think there's questions for both parties over them, how their selections work. That was, that's been a big factor when you kind of do the, you know, post-mortem on Jared Amara's tenure and his Tory kind of two years in Parliament. But I think the Tories have questions over that as well. If you look at um, examples such as Imran Ahmed Khan, who was the uh, Conservative MP in Wakefield, who was jailed for um, sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy, there are questions there as well over how he got through the selection stage. So I think, you know, if we're going to improve standards, it's all very well. People like Rishi Sunak and Daniel Greenberg, the standards commissioner, saying we're going to be tough, but the parties have to take some responsibility as well at the very, very early stage to make sure they're selecting candidates who are fit to hold public office. Well, Jerry Scott, Times political reporter, and Patrick English from YouGov. Thanks very much for joining us for today's big thing. Lots of interesting uh, insights on those numbers from YouGov. 70% of the people, of uh, the public, uh, rather, say that the Conservatives give the impression of being very sleazy and disreputable. How might Rishi Sunak turn that around? That's the question we're considering today. Now, history doesn't repeat itself, but of course, it sometimes rhymes. There have been times in recent decades when standards in public life have become a huge political issue. Think uh, the expenses scandal of 2009 or the high watermark of sleaze in modern times under John Major. I have made it clear from the very outset that these matters must be properly examined. Why else would I have set up the inquiries? Many people criticised me for doing so and said, why have you done this? You could have brushed it aside after a week of parliamentary difficulty and it would all have gone away. I didn't do that. And why didn't I do that? Because I happen to care about the reputation of Parliament in the short term and the long term. And if, if people have misbehaved, then it must be dealt with. That was John Major making impassioned defence of his efforts to raise standards in public life during the 1990s when his government was rocked by a series of scandals about ministerial impropriety, be it personal or uh, financial. Now, one man who came to symbolise that era and public revulsion with uh, political sleaze was Martin Bell. He was the BBC war reporter who ran as an independent unity candidate in the Cheshire constituency of Tatton in 1997. The man in the white suit, they called him. That was in the wake of a series of scandals that helped sink John Major's government. And he, of course, unseated the notorious Neil Hamilton. And Martin Bell joins us now. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Patrick. Um, do you think we can draw comparisons between this era, the scandals we've seen in Westminster in recent months and years, and the 1990s, which most people listening will remember or will think as the sort of, I'm not, not sure golden age is quite the, uh, quite the right phrase to use here, but the, uh, certainly uh, a purple patch for sleaze? Uh, I think it's tempting to say that this is, this is old times relived all over again. But in a way, I think it's worse now. Because back in the 1990s, most of the Tory MPs accused of impropriety were relatively junior ministers or or backbenchers. Now the the, the taint seems to have spread to the other echelons of the party, former chancellor, former chairman, former prime minister. And I think the other difference is that back in the 1990s, we were living in times of relative prosperity. 
But now the culture of living crisis, people look at their own predicament and they have the perception that uh, MPs are in public life for what they can get out of it. So they take an extreme end in view, and I think that is reflected in today's opinion poll. And that means Rishi Sunak surely has an even more difficult task than John Major, and there are similarities to there. Rishi Sunak has, you know, with the exception of perhaps his wife's tax affairs, not his tax affairs, his wife's tax affairs, um, which have since been clarified and corrected, uh, his fine for uh, attending a Downing Street party, if only fleetingly, uh, he isn't really personally tainted in the way that other frontline politicians are, just like John Major. But John Major couldn't turn the reputation of his party around uh, for all the reasons that you've just said. So Rishi Sunak may well struggle too. Uh, I think I think he will. Uh, John Major really did, did try, and that, that clip that you broadcast uh, illustrated it very eloquently. He did not speak it under the carpet. He tried to, he tried to deal with it. Uh, the party tried to deselect some of its MPs who are under a bit of a cloud, but their associations stood by them and they helped to bring the party down in our 97 election. Uh, I think that Richie Sunak, of course, personally is protected by his, by, his, by, by his wealth. There's no allegation of impropriety about him, but I think he's going to face an extraordinarily difficult task in turning this public perception around. Now let's remind people of your campaign against Neil Hamilton, the battle of Nutsford Heath. And then in his white suit, suggesting trust and integrity, off he strode to meet them, promising a fair fight. And so I'd really like to know from you what allegations of corruption I'll, you think I'm guilty I'll of. Give you, I'll give you my answer. I don't actually intend to talk about you at all, or people are going to ask me about you. I want you to run on your record or against your record, whatever it is. I want a, a clear election. I may yes. talk about trust. I think the issue of trust is important. Do you get the same sense now, Martin Bell, uh, Martin Bell, when you're out and about talking to people? And I'm sure lots. we're not the first uh, radio show or television programme to ask your views on this new era of uh, sleaze as the public perceive it. Do you, do you get the same sense of anger from the public as you sensed in, in Tatton during that famous campaign in 1997? I think it is, if anything, uh, more acute now. And, of course, people do come up to me and say, uh, why don't you, you make a comeback? Well, I think at the age of 84, it's fairly unlikely. But there is the same deep unease in the public uh, about the standards being set by, by MPs now, you know, I should be quite pleased there are something like 14 independent MPs in the House of Commons at mm. the moment, but they're independent for all the wrong reasons because they've had the party withdrawn under the allegation of some misdemeanor or another. I think we've reached a very critical turning point, and I also believe the public are going to respond again much as they did in the 1990s. And there's a sense, as you say that the entire political class is in trouble. That's perhaps another difference with the 1990s. Then it was identified as a problem with the Conservative Party. You get the sense now that the anger is much more diffuse. That yes, yes, I do. It, it uh, affects every party. So, so how can politicians of any side deal with that if it's become part of the way the public perceive politics and Westminster culture? Well, I think for a start, the parties have got to be much more rigorous in their selection of process so that uh, uh, criminals and people under a cloud of al allegations of impropriety do not easily become their party's nominees. And it's up to the MPs themselves. If MPs want to be perceived 
in a better light. It's quite simple, simple they, they, they behave better. But I think we have a long way to go before, before the public is reassured that that is the case. Well, Martin Bell, uh, the MP for Tatton, 1997-2001, having run, of course, as an independent candidate on an anti-sleaze ticket. Thanks very much for joining us to talk through the history uh, at play here. Of course, it isn't the first time a government of any colour has uh, run aground on allegations of sleaziness and disreputability. Um, but Martin Bell, they're really striking, given the scale of public anger, given he became uh, the face of an election that, that was in part so uh, lopsided in its result because of how the public perceived the Conservative Party, saying, if anything, it's even worse, not just for Rishi Sunak, but for politics as a culture. And that, I think, just highlights the extent of the challenge here, not just for Rishi Sunak, but for Keir Starmer and every other political leader too. It's a really interesting and thorny issue, this, and it's really a bigger question than any uh, personality or party. Now let's speak now to Gavin Barwell. He was Chief of Staff at Downing Street under Theresa May. Remember, we're talking about whether Rishi Sunak can turn around the public perception of the Conservative Party as sleazy and disreputable. Not our words, the words of YouGov, who found that 70% of voters agree with that proposition in exclusive polling for The Times and Times Radio. Uh, Lord Barwell, good morning. Morning. Um, Theresa May had many problems uh, during her premiership, as you know better than anyone, but a perceived lack of probity uh, was never really one of them, was it? No, no. I mean, I think uh, her problem essentially was the Gordian knot of Brexit. Uh, and then from the point that I started, the very difficult parliamentary arithmetic that she had as a result of the 2017 election having gone badly wrong. But I think all of our polling suggested people had a very high regard for her in terms of her standards and her approach to public life. And it's interesting because Rishi Sunak came in with a lot of goodwill from the public and... Uh, and in his speech on the steps of number 10 when he became Prime Minister in October, seemed tentatively, uh, despite the uh, very restive, ill-mannered uh, atmosphere in his party, seemed tentatively to define himself against his predecessors. He said he was going to lead a government with you know, integrity, uh, accountability, professionalism. Uh, unlike Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, he, uh, or rather, you know, Boris Johnson lost his advisor on ministerial ethics. Liz Truss never got round to appointing one. He appointed uh, Laurie Magnus, a, an advisor on ministerial ethics. He was quick to act on Adim Zahawi once uh, Laurie Magnus reported. But it doesn't seem to have cut through any of that, does it? So I think there's two things in what you said that it's interesting. Um, the first is, it was very noteworthy, I think, what he said in that first speech. People give a lot of thought to what they say in that first speech outside that famous black door. And I would draw a slight distinction. He he explicitly criticised Liz Truss. He said that the previous, you know, her government had made some mistakes and it was his job to put them right. The criticism of Boris Johnson was implicit. So, he, as you said, he talked about having a different approach to restoring trust standards in public life but he didn't name Boris Johnson or criticise him directly. And that, I think, points to one of the problems that he, um, that he had, essentially. He has it, essentially, which is, I would argue that basically what he's suffering from at the moment is a case of long Boris, that all of these issues that are hitting him in terms of, uh, you know, ministers in difficulty, or some of the stories about Boris Johnson's own personal finances, they're all hangovers from the Johnson government, but they're landing on his desk and he can't 
differentiate himself as much as he might like from that government, partly because he was in it, but also because he's trying to keep the Conservative Party together and he's got 100 or so MPs on his back benches who are still big fans of Boris Johnson. So he's he's trying to sort of navigate himself through this situation almost with one hand tied behind his back. Well, George Osborne the former Chancellor, has made a very, very similar point to you. Let's let's hear it now. This is George Osborne speaking to uh, Andrew Neil on Channel 4 just after Nadim Zahawi's sacking. To my mind, the defining thing of his political career was his decision to resign as Chancellor from the Boris Johnson government over sleaze, over integrity. But he's never really talked about that. And he got the very first hint of it at Prime Minister's questions this week where he started to say, I resigned from the Johnson government. I think you're going to hear a lot more of that. I think he'll have learnt lessons, even from the Zahawi affair, that you need to act more quickly uh, than he did. And I think he's going to try and define himself now as the sort of sleaze buster. Well, when I speak uh, to people in the Labour Party in particular, uh, Gavin Barwell, this is the thing, the scenario I always ask, what, what can Rishi Sunak do to credibly turn it around? What could Rishi Sunak do that would really worry you? And they say, well, very aggressively defining himself against his predecessors, coming out and saying, look, I'm not Boris Johnson, I'm not Liz Truss, I resigned from Boris Johnson's government for a reason, and really clamping down on um, on their followers and, and drawing a, a line in the sand that nobody is allowed to cross. But do you think he's just too politically weak to do it? I'm not sure if it's a question of political weakness. It's a very difficult balancing act he's got because one of the reasons, you know, one, of the, one of the things that, that drove people away from the Conservative Party in the autumn was the kind of political chaos. Mm. So one of the things he's got, he's been trying to do is stabilise the situation and, you know, get back to some kind of normalcy. And obviously if he, less so probably with Liz Truss, but with Boris Johnson, if he defined himself very aggressively as anti-Johnson and clearing up Johnson's mess, he's going to have a real hard time with all the people in the parliamentary party that are still Boris Johnson's fans. So it's it's a very difficult position in that sense that he's inherited. And, you know, I heard the clip you just had from, from George Osborne there, but it was quite noticeable, actually, when he resigned, he didn't at the time, I think everyone assumed it was because of the sleaze issue, but he actually, if you look at the sort of form of words he used in his resignation letter, he pointed more to sort of differences over style of government. Mm. So he was obviously wrestling with that, difficulty of how explicit to be about how he felt about what had gone on, even at that point. Yes, and also, you know, there was the other issue of um, differences in their economic approach too. So clearly yeah. it wasn't quite as straightforward as perhaps as George Osborne was saying there. Do you think it's Rishi Sunak can credibly become then the sleaze buster in chief that George Osborne, that sort of role George Osborne was sketching out there because the difficult thing is you know he's sort of damned as he if he doesn't damned if he doesn't as you say the the political context is difficult and when Nadim Zahawi was on the brink for that extended period of time uh, last month you heard the opposition constantly say to Rishi Sunak why won't you sack him why won't you sack him Rishi Sunak deferred to the process um, and then the process concluded Rishi Sunak sacked him and, and Nadim Zahawi said well hang on the process wasn't fair anyway so there's always that difficult balance too if you're presenting yourself as um, you know Mr Probity Mr uh, Mr Anti-Sleaze that you've got to respect due process and that on some occasions, like the Deems Harvey, like Dominic Raab is, a, is perhaps a better example, creates a vacuum where you look like you're being indecisive when really you have done, you know, in inverted commas, the right thing in giving it to an independent process. So it's very difficult to win the argument in these situations, isn't it? It is. 
It is. I mean, look, there's, there's a part, I, I, I admire him for wanting to have due process. I think ministers deserve um, some kind of independent investigation that assesses whether or not they've breached the code. But as George was saying in that clip, it's, it's got to be a rapid process. Politics dictates that. It's very uncomfortable. And, I, you know, I can remember a couple of situations that occurred during my time as chief of staff. It's very uncomfortable for a prime minister when you've got a minister who's exposed lots of press attention into what they've done. And all you've really got is a holding line that we're, we're waiting for the independent advisor to come back to us um, with their conclusions. So, yes, process, but it's got to be a rapid one that allows the prime minister to make quick decisions and move the agenda on. I think, I think Rishi is capable of doing this. I think he does personally feel very strongly about trying to restore some of the standards in public life that were allowed to slip under Johnson and strengthening some of those independent institutions that are so important to our government. And I think it was a very good decision, for example, to, have to, to reappoint someone into the role of prime minister's advisors on standards. But it is going to be very difficult for him because there may well be other stories to follow, um, all of which will date back to the Johnson regime. He's probably got some difficult decisions to make about John Boris Johnson's resignation peerages. We've got the whole issue of the privileges investigation into whether uh, whether Johnson misled the House. So we can already see more issues coming down the conveyor belt at the Prime Minister. You heard there from Lord Barwell, former Number 10 Chief of Staff, Patrick English, Associate Director at YouGov, Jerry Scott, Times political reporter, and Martin Bell, the former independent anti-Sleaze MP for Tatton. That's all we got time for on today's Redbox Politics podcast. I'll be back tomorrow. Remember to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.